0: Okay, would you please stand and turn with me to Revelation chapter 7. Zechariah 8 is going to give to God's people a vision of what their community is going to be like in the future, uh, much better than what they have known in the past. The book of Revelation gives us this vision of what our community is going to be like in the final future. We can relish that together tonight. Uh, Revelation 7, starting at verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands... They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. Let's turn now to Zechariah chapter 8. Remember, this is picking up in the middle of a section after those emissaries had come at the beginning of chapter 7. Jews living outside Jerusalem asking, should we continue to practice this annual fast, commemorating the destruction of of Jerusalem 70 years years earlier, now that the temple's being rebuilt? And Zechariah had challenged them on their thinking about that, their motives for either their fasting or anything else in their lives he reminded them of the cause of the exile in the first place and Israel's rebellion against God and what led to the land becoming desolate. So that no one went to and fro and the pleasant land was made desolate. That's the end of chapter 7. Chapter 8 now is continuing um, that train of thought with some additional um, oracles looking towards the future now. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying... Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, you who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days, there was no wage for man or any wage for beast, neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now... I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts. So again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another, and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah, Seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples shall yet come. Even the inhabitants of many cities, the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem, and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Amen. You may be seated. Well, from a very young age, we are all taught <clears throat> not to run out into the street, right? It's not safe. You get hit by a car. Don't do it. Don't play in the street. And, of course, that's what makes it all the more exciting when a neighborhood decides to have what we call a block party, where you plan out ahead of time with the town, look, can we just stop traffic on this block for a few hours, And uh, during that time, everybody in the neighborhood is going to be able to gather together safely right in the middle of the street. (coughs) Around here, they'll do something like this uh, Downtown for Arts Fest, I think, right? Where they block off uh, large sections of the downtown streets. Or on a smaller scale, they'll do it for a farmer's market or uh, other smaller events and things like, like that. There's something about having the community gather right out in the middle of the road. And uh, it's it's something that feels kind of celebratory and fun. And it's a sign that things are going well. It's a sign that things are the way they ought to be. It's a sign of just peace and well-being for a community to be able to do that. And you think about the reasons that that might not be able to happen. What kinds of things would keep people indoors? Keep people from wanting to go to an event like that? Keep people feeling like they needed to hunker down, take shelter, take shelter? Avoid other people. Stay out of the open. Keep to themselves. Maybe leave town altogether. Um, You may have read about some of the cities in Ukraine right now uh, where all of the children have been evacuated to, to safer cities, maybe further to the west. And really the only people who remain behind in those cities are the soldiers and just a few lingering civilians who either don't have anywhere else to go or they... For various reasons, they can't leave or they won't leave. You just imagine a city with all of the children gone. You imagine what that would look like, what that would sound like—that that silence. And frequently, uh, the prophets will describe God's judgment in those kinds of terms: that that silence, that um, abandonment of a city, the the. Um, The emptiness and desolation of of the streets and the buildings and so on. Think about Jerusalem after the exile. Um, After all the people had been carried away into captivity. Think about how eerie the city of Jerusalem would have been after that. All in ruins and just completely silent. Here in Zechariah 8 the Lord is is teaching the returning remnant now in Jerusalem to look forward to something very different. To look forward to the, whatever is the opposite of that silence, the opposite of that tragic emptiness. And not, not just the bare repopulation of Jerusalem, where there weren't people, but now there's going to be people living there again. But it's something more, something better than that. He's... he's Uh, setting before them a vision of this future time of peace and flourishing where Jerusalem is now a safe place where children can play in the streets again. And that's just the beginning because it gets even better from there. Um, So I warned you last time that chapter 7 was going to end on a down note and chapter 8 was going to bring us up. Uh, Back out of the valley, we're going to get to enjoy that upward trajectory tonight in three parts. First of all, a picture of peace, verses 1 through 8, that we've already been talking about. Second, an encouragement and an exhortation in verses 9 to 17 that go together, an encouragement and an exhortation. And then third will be a magnetic faith, verses 18 to 23. So a picture of peace and encouragement and exhortation and a magnetic faith. Okay, um, we kind of hit rock bottom last week. I already uh, spent some time before I read reviewing what happened in chapter 7. How the Lord had confronted these people asking about their annual fasts. uh, What's really going on in your hearts? Whether or not you fast at this certain time of year is not nearly as important to the Lord as, ...as your heart commitments are. What are your ultimate values? Um, how are you living in covenant with God... ...and in community with each other... ...as part of that covenant? That's what got your ancestors in trouble. They were stubborn... ...and they hardened their hearts against the word of God... ...and that is why they went into exile. That's what you were supposed to be remembering every year... ...when you had this fast. You were supposed to be taking to heart... ...the lessons of the exile... ...so that you wouldn't make the same mistake... In your generation. Now, in chapter eight, the tone uh, kind of changes. Now that he's reviewed that tragic history of uh, of the exile, um, now he says, "Thus says the Lord of hosts." And at first, it doesn't sound very nice at all. He says, "I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath." And you think, "Oh, jealousy and wrath of God—that sounds like bad, more bad news." But It's not, because he doesn't say, I'm jealous against Jerusalem. He says, I'm jealous for Jerusalem. That is good news for the people of God. God is jealous in the sense that Jerusalem belongs to him and to him alone. And now he wants to protect his holy city and its people from anybody who would try to interfere with the plans for blessing and restoration that he's going to bring about there. I have returned to Zion. I have returned, the Lord says. And I'm going to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. That's going to be Jerusalem's new reputation. People see what God's doing there and think, this is the place to be, this is great. So what's going to make the difference for Jerusalem? What is going to transform it from this cursed wasteland that it's been, it's described in other passages of prophetic judgment, now transformed into this place of blessing and security and prosperity and peace? Well, the difference is going to be the presence of God. It's the presence of the Lord. He is going to dwell there in this special way. He is personally going to guarantee Jerusalem's safety and well-being. And it's going to be a good, desirable place to live. Why? Because the Lord is there. And notice that's the way the chapter ends as well. It's where we're going to kind of wrap up with verse 23. Okay, so to illustrate just how good things are going to be in Jerusalem, the Lord gives Zechariah this word picture to, again, not just tell, but to show what this new uh, new, um, time of covenant blessing is going to look like and what it's going to feel like. And so he gives... It's this picture of what we might almost describe as an ancient block party. (laughs) Um, I'm exaggerating there. They wouldn't have had block parties. And, of course, they wouldn't have had cars making the streets dangerous. But still, you get the idea. This is like Arts Fest on Children's Day. Right? Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And of course, to our Ameri- you know, 21st century American minds, we're thinking, oh, that sounds bad. All these people are going to be leaning on their staff, all old and decrepit. That sounds really depressing. No, it's not. If not when you think in biblical terms about what old age means. Listen, when there are a lot of wars and invasions and um, things like that going on, not many people live long enough to get old. Okay. We think of getting old as a bad thing. And of course, in some ways, it is really tough getting old in a fallen world. But let's not forget the Bible's overwhelming perspective on old, on old age to point out the blessing of a long life. That this means that the Lord has kept you safe. He has given to you these years of life. A civilization, moreover, thinking on the grander scale of a group of people, a civilization where people live to a ripe old age, that's a civilization characterized by peace, prosperity, plenty. People aren't starving to death at a young age. People aren't dying young by violence. It's a good thing to have a civilization full of people of great age. And then on the other end of the spectrum, our children. Think of cultures that you hear about about where the average age is increasing because the birth rate is so low that the older generation is not being replaced in the tragedy of having a civilization with, with very few children. Well, for all of the elderly here in Jerusalem, they are also complemented, by this rising generation as well. And it says, And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. So this means the Lord is blessing his people with this, with this gift of childbearing, of being fruitful and multiplying, and filling up the city, filling up the land that he's given them with the next generation. And you know what that means? It means that the covenant is going to live on. The covenant is going to live on. These children also, these children don't have to hunker down in hiding, afraid of the next invading army or the bandits, you know, or the the lawless, you know, roving um, people who are going to terrorize them. These kids are playing in the streets because the streets are a safe place for them. There is order, there is peace, there is security. This is a city that is flourishing and full of life. This is the way things are supposed to be. Now, that kind of future might have been hard for the current generation in Jerusalem to imagine. People living in Jerusalem in Zechariah's day. You know, when a, when a basketball uh, team or football team or baseball team has a really bad season, they'll often spin it by saying, well, this is a rebuilding year. This is a rebuilding year. And you could say in Jerusalem that this was quite literally a rebuilding season, for Jerusalem and for the people of God. And the Lord recognizes this. The Lord acknowledges this. He says, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in these days. He says, I, I know this sounds crazy. It's hard for you to imagine Jerusalem looking like this one day. But listen, it's not marvelous in my sight. This is not too hard for me. Nothing is impossible with God. This is what God is determined to do. I am truly going to do for you something much better than you can currently imagine would be possible. I am going to save my people," he says, "from east and west, and I'm going to bring them to live here again. And then in verse eight, um, he so beautifully he repeats that that uh, refrain of covenant promise that you see all through the Old Testament um, in many places when he says, "And they shall be my people." And I will be their God. Over and over again, this is God's promise. This is so important to the Bible's teaching about the covenant between God and his people. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the heartbeat of the covenant relationship. That he is ours and we are his. He is our God. We are his people. And the Lord reiterates, refreshes that promise to them here in verse 8. Okay, now we come to the middle part of the chapter where, as I said, there's both an encouragement and an exhortation, an encouragement and an exhortation that that go together, that God wants to give these people side by side. On the one hand, he wants to reassure them things are really going to be different now. He says, let your hands be strong. He's basically saying, yes, for many years now, you have been living with the consequences of covenant curse. There was no wage for man or beast, no safety from enemies. There were threats from outside the community. There was conflict within the community. These have been really dark times that you've been uh, living through. But listen, this is going to be a new era now. The Lord, he says, is planting seeds of peace. Seeds of peace. There shall be a sowing of peace, verse 12 says. God's planting these seeds that are going to grow and they're going to get stronger as the years go by. And you remember that in the Bible, peace, that's one of those Hebrew words that everybody knows, shalom, shalom, Um, that doesn't just mean the absence of conflict, just doesn't mean that people aren't fighting, It, it means this wholeness and flourishing, it means this idea that things are the way they're supposed to be. And and that's the picture you get here of the ground giving its produce and the heavens giving their due. So there's this agricultural prosperity. There's plenty of food to eat because the ground is being fruitful. Um, He says, yeah, you've been an object of of ridicule, basically, for other countries up until now. But from this time on, he says, I'm going to save you and I'm going to make you a blessing. And so the payoff of this, the encouragement is don't be afraid. Let your hands be strong. This is encouragement for God's people. And by the way, I love that word, encouragement. If we could get into our minds and hearts the, the fullness of what that means. Encouragement. Somebody, It's like somebody infusing courage into you. Encourage. Courage going into you. Don't be afraid. Let your hands be strong. That's God's encouragement for these people. Um, but that encouragement can't be separated from God's exhortation. God's exhortation in verses 14 to 17. So yes, things are about to be different than they've been. Uh, but this is only going to play out in this way if you yourselves are different by God's power. Things are going to be different for you than they've been for your ancestors. But God also wants you to be different from your ancestors. Um. Back then, God says, I resolved to bring covenant curse against them because of my wrath. But now, I've resolved to bring covenant blessing in your time. That uh, covenant blessing of God obviously places a call, a responsibility on God's people. He says, speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Love no false oath." For all these things I hate. In other words, I'm planning to give you covenant blessing and I'm calling you, therefore, to walk the path of covenant blessing. Make sure that you're not living a life as a community that that contradicts this covenant blessing that I'm planning to give you. There needs to be a match. There needs to be a harmony between this, this picture of future blessing and the kind of covenant community life that goes with it. Think about if uh, the, the opposite of these uh, character qualities are going on at large in the community, then it's going to create a, 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 an instability, an injustice, and an atmosphere of fear and terror and injustice is not going to be the kind of place you want your kids going out and playing in the streets. Right? Um, There are a lot of people who want the encouragements of God's word, but not the exhortations. Think about this idea of encouragement and exhortation. Uh, What appeals to our selfish nature is a version of religion where God owes us everything, and we owe God nothing. It's this entitlement mentality, you could say where we're always asking, what can God do for me? We're not wanting to think about the question, what am I being called to do in the kingdom of God and for the people of God in, and for a lost world, for lost friends and neighbors and strangers who desperately need the hope of this kind of peace, this kind of well-being, this kind of flourishing life and lasting security that Zechariah's prophes- prophesying about and that the gospel offers to sinners. And that really leads us, that idea of, of of that responsibility that we have to those around us leads us <clears throat> right into this last section that we're calling a magnetic faith. And here I have very much in mind that uh, Daniel Strange book that I told you about in our Apologetic Sunday School class about a year ago, uh, Making Faith Magnetic. That's where I got that phrasing from. Um, Zechariah gives the faithful remnant this this picture of a, of the future where... People from all over the world are now being drawn, they're being attracted to Jerusalem because they can tell this is a place where spiritual life is to be had. This is a place where we can flourish. Jerusalem is the place to be. This is a place that we want to be. We want to go there uh, and not out of duty, not out of fear of punishment. We want to go there because we can see this is what it looks like to truly live. These people are really living. This is where people are really, truly happy. And so we want to be there too. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth. Notice how the number of fasts keeps multiplying. People first asked about the the one fast in the fifth month, and um, then the Lord keeps mentioning these other fasts. Why did they have so much fasting? Well, they had a lot to be sorrowful about. They had a lot to grieve as a community. They had a lot to repent for. And the Lord is saying, I I see your fasting. Don't think I haven't noticed. Yes, you fast a lot. Very impressive. But here's what I'm going to do, the Lord says. I'm going to take those days of fasting, and I'm going to transform them. I'm going to transform them into days of feasting instead. They shall be, to the house of Judah, seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. love the promise in Isaiah chapter 61 where the Lord says that he's going to give to those who mourn in Zion a beautiful headdress instead of their ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Earlier we sang from Psalm 30. Um, I read to you that part where it says, You've turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. See, God is in the business of taking the devastation caused by our sin and overcoming it. Not merely forgiving it and forgetting it. He transforms that devastation into supernatural blessing that only He could ever provide for sinners like us. It's like we heard this morning, where the Lord took that banner of sin and condemnation and death, and He overwhelms those things with His much bigger and better and grander and more powerful banner of righteousness and justification and life through the death of Christ and his resurrection from the dead. Therefore, the Lord says, love, truth, and peace. Again, it's like what we were saying earlier, there is this way of life for God's people that flows from and that matches and that harmonizes with this supernatural work of God. They go together. See, Also, notice what God is promising here, that he's not just going to transform our circumstances, he is going to transform us, and that is good news. Again, people want to have their circumstances transformed. If only I could be happy instead of sad. If only I could have joy instead of sorrow. If only I could be prosperous instead of needy. And God is promising a transformation of our circumstances in the long run. But that doesn't happen separate from him transforming us too, teaching us to love this way of covenant life that he wants uh, to work in our hearts and work out in our actions and our words towards the people around us. This is good news for God's people, and it is good news that is worth sharing. So he goes on, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. And the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Anybody want to come? Y'all come. I'm going. Who's coming with me? Many peoples and strong nations shall shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. I love this. In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. People are clinging, gathering from all around. And notice there is this tenfold increase for every one Jew. There are these ten people from the nations all latching on, saying, let us go with you, please. In one sense, this is not a brand new idea that Zechariah is talking about because this is, uh, comes from a very old promise. Um, Abraham and you, all of the families of the earth are going to be blessed, right? This goes all the way back to at least to there. This is always the plan. This is always Israel's mission. It was always the destiny of God's people. Even going back further is to to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It goes all the way back to creation. The creation mandate, this plan of God. But on the other hand, what Zechariah is saying here is quite brand new in another sense. This kind of widespread, worldwide turning to God. All of these foreigners from these distant lands clamoring to get on board with what God is doing among his now renewed and restored people. This is something that Israel had never experienced before, actually, in their history. This is something the world had never experienced before. And notice I'm putting that in the past tense because now the world is getting a taste of this very thing. It has at least begun. It has begun now that Christ has come. Now that Christ has died on the cross and risen from the dead, God has indeed thrown wide the door of his saving grace to the nations. And no longer is he building a symbolic picture of grace um, and salvation among just one family, just one ethnic group, just one nation in one corner of the world, which is what he was doing under the old covenant. Now Christ has come and he is gathering all men to himself, he says, people from every corner of creation as he was lifted up to draw all men to himself. He's come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, extending all through his creation. And the remarkable thing is that we learn here is that he has made us a part of that work. The Lord didn't really need Israel to save the nations. But look at what he's doing here in this passage as God is laboring in the world to draw people to himself he has made Israel the magnet to draw them. And today the Lord has as the Lord is working in the world now to accomplish his mission of saving the nations he has made his church, the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ his magnet to draw the world to himself at risk of overdoing the illustration. I go so far to say we're like an electromagnetic. You know, an electromagnet is this ordinary piece of iron. It has no power on itself, in itself. But as it's wrapped with that coiled wire and that voltage surrounds it. It becomes magnetic by the grace of God and draws towards it the metal objects around it. And that's what we're like as Christ's church. There's nothing special about us particularly, but as that high voltage of the power of God and his salvation surrounds us and enlivens us. God has designed to make us his magnetic people and to draw others with the attraction of his goodness, his kindness, his love, his truthfulness, his integrity and compassion and care at work in our lives. Coming out, then Through our lips and our hands and our relationships, our service towards the people that He's put into our lives, our readiness to tell the good news of what Jesus has done for us and for them. God's the one who gives all of this power to make us magnetic. He really wants us to be the magnet, to see ourselves that way, to embrace that calling. And to expect him through us to be drawing people to himself. Eager to see that happen. So, yeah, thanks again to Daniel Strange for that great illustration of making faith magnetic. I want to close with one other author that's made an impact on me more recently. I just this past week finished a book by a man named Max Stiles who wrote Evangelism how the whole church speaks of Jesus. And he was talking about how, on the one hand, evangelism should not be all about the church starting all kinds of fancy programs, which often make us feel like we're doing something about reaching the lost, when really we're just making ourselves too busy, actually, to build relationships with the non-Christians that we already know. But on the other hand, evangelism isn't merely personal. Either. It's not merely individual and one on one. It is something that the whole church does together. It is the task of the people of God as a community. And so he was advocating for what he calls, what many people call, a culture of evangelism in the church, where we are expecting to interact with non Christians, where we're expecting to have non Christians with us in worship, where we're expecting one another to. You know, in a very real way, uh, uh, expecting it of one another, to be reaching out to non-Christian people so that we can encourage one another in that work, so that we can help one another along the way, so that we can build real relationships together with these people who need God's grace in Jesus for just this reason that Zechariah sets before us here. It's so that we can become, by the grace of God, a community of people who, where people are really going to want to grab onto our coattails and say, let us go with you, because we can tell from the way you live your lives that God is with you. This community of sinful, broken, messed up people saved by grace, this is the kind of place that I want to be, because these people are really living. These people are really loving each other and me. God is with them, and I can see that he can be with me too. That's the kind of church that we want to be, by the grace of God and his saving power. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you that you have transformed our fasting into feasting, our sorrow into salvation and celebration. And Lord, we ask that we would not be content with that stopping with us. We ask that you would indeed magnetize us as your holy people to draw others to the goodness and grace and peace and life-giving power of Lord Jesus Christ. That people would um, see uh, a kind of community, a kind of life a kind of outlook on the world um, that is desirable. They can see that you are with us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.